0: Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 10 and 11 this morning. Acts chapter 10 and 11 as we continue our series in the book of Acts. Uh, This past week I ran across an article that's a couple of years old, but it came out of England and the headline on the article is Science Friction, Star Wars and Doctor Who Fans Come to Blows Over Autographs. It says police were called to a sci-fi convention after a confrontation between costumed characters from rival clubs. Trouble flared when members of the Norwich Sci-Fi Club were refused entry to a fair hosted by the Norwich Star Wars Club at the University of East Anglia. More than a dozen Star Wars and Doctor Who fans, including some in fancy dress, were involved in the confrontation on Sunday after a member of the Norwich Sci-Fi Club attempted to get an autograph from Doctor Who actor Graham Cole. It's understood the groups had been involved in a long-running dispute and the hosts had warned their rivals to stay away. After comments were posted on Facebook, Norfolk Post Police confirmed they'd been called to reports of an assault. It was confirmed there was no assault. The two rival groups were spoken to and advised to keep out of each other's way. Both groups told the Norwich Evening News they now hope to put their differences behind them. Uh, now, that article made me laugh and also made me a little bit sad. Uh, you know, it, it is, though, a classic illustration of kind of an us versus them conflict, right? Uh, Instead of West Side Story, you have Star Wars fans versus Doctor Who fans. And uh, they are so passionate about their group, they are ready to come to blows, right? And this, of course, made national news in England because it's a little funny to think about people dressed up as, you know, Princess Leia or Luke Skywalker or Doctor Who characters fighting with one another over which group is the best, But I think it also highlights the tendency that all of us have as human beings to divide ourselves into groups. Maybe you do divide yourself into a group based on some interest like Star Wars or Star Trek or something along those lines. Uh, But we also divide ourselves into groups that hit a little bit deeper to us. Maybe you think of yourself in terms of some sort of ethnic or racial group. I'm white or black or Hispanic or maybe a, an ethnic group like I'm American or Canadian or Mexican or Middle Eastern or whatever it may be. You think of yourself according to that group. Maybe you think of yourself primarily in terms of gender. I'm male or I'm female. Uh, maybe you think of yourself in terms of an economic group. Right? I'm white collar, college educated, or I am blue collar, and I live in a different economic sphere. Maybe you think of yourself according to some affinity, like I am an Aggie, or I am a T-sip, right? And those types of affinity groups might be the most hostile and deepest of all. The reality is that all of us on some level have a tendency to put ourselves into groups so that we think, here is us, right? This is my group. And when I look outside my group, there is them. And what we do is we create an us that fits what we feel comfortable with. And then we isolate ourselves in overt or subtle ways from those who are them. So maybe it is as simple as when we walk down the street, we see somebody and we immediately classify them and we think that is them, right? That is a person who is not like me, and so maybe I'm just going to move over a little bit and try to put some physical distance between me and that person. It may be that we uh, move into an area deliberately to try to put boundaries between ourselves and another person. Uh, It may simply be an attitude of our hearts that when we see somebody who doesn't fit our group, we're inclined first to judge them according to their external appearance. And so we create these categories and we say, this is us and this is them. The question that we have to face though, as we read through the New Testament, as we read through the book of Acts, is do those categories and does our tendency to divide ourselves into groups, do those things contribute positively? to the mission God has called us to in the church, to make disciples of all nations. Do those things, those tendencies in us to divide up groups, do those things reflect the heart of God, who is a God who desires to bring people from all nations, all tribes, all groups, to worship him under one banner, Jesus Christ. And I think if we're honest, we would recognize that often the divisions that we make and the way we divide up into groups really is nothing more than sin. It's a sin that goes all the way back, in fact, to the book of Genesis. If you think about how after Genesis 11, after the Tower of Babel, God, in a judgment upon the human race, divides people up into different ethnicities and racial groups and languages so they can't understand each other. And what you see throughout the rest of the history of mankind is this division and conflict and warfare and fighting between different groups. Suspicion even between male and female. Suspicion and hatred between different groups. And what you see as you read through the New Testament is God instead creating a new community composed of those who worship Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. The early church had to deal with this issue uh, to a great degree. The early church had to deal with this issue to a great degree for the first several decades of their existence. And of course, in the early days, in the first century, the big division was what? It was Jew versus Gentile. If you were a Jewish believer, you took comfort in the fact that you were Jewish. You were an us. You were one of the people who was close to God, who had the law, who had the promises, the covenants of God. You had the Old Testament. You had the temple. You could worship God in a certain way. And Gentiles were out there. They were the them. In fact, if you wanted it to worship God along with the Jews, if you were Gentile, you had to effectively become one of the Jews. If you were a male who wanted to worship God like they did, you had to become a proselyte. You had to be circumcised. You had to offer sacrifices in the temple. You had to keep kosher and only eat certain foods. And so very few people went to that great length to worship God. And in fact, even if you did all those things as a Gentile, there were still things you could not do. There were still places in the temple you could not go. And there were still activities in the worship of the Jewish people you couldn't participate in. But what you see happening in the early church, particularly in the book of Acts, is God begins to break down this wall between the us and the them, instead saying, I want to create an entirely new community, all us that is under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Spirit so that God says, I wanna draw people closer and closer. I no longer want you to push people away based upon Jew or Gentile, free or slave, male or female, or any other group you may compose. But instead, first and foremost, we think of people in terms of their relationship to God. That's what Acts 10 and 11 is about. We will see God begin to work this out in the life of Peter, who really at this point is the premier apostle. He's leading the church in the life of Peter and in the life of this man, Cornelius. And God is going to say, I want these two groups now to become one in Jesus Christ. So that when it comes to approaching God, there is no more us and them. There's just us. And for you and me, this is going to challenge how we think about people. How we think about our relationships with other people. And what we think about first when we see those who are them. All right, so let's look at Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read a good uh, chunk of the passage before we dive into some of our points. So Acts chapter 10, verse 1, if you have a Bible, turn there. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. Now, go down to uh, verse 28. After Peter enters their house, Peter said to them, you yourselves know... How unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. Now go down to verse 34. Opening in his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him, and does what is right, is welcome to him. Okay, so the first thing we see that God begins to show Peter and Cornelius is this, that there is no more them. Now, it helps to understand who Cornelius is. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. That means that he was a soldier who was in charge of around a hundred other soldiers. He's probably equivalent to a captain in our military. There are officer's over him, and there are officers under him, but he's kind of in this middle range where he's over about a hundred people. And Cornelius, as a Roman man, had apparently become disillusioned with the Roman gods. So he gravitates toward Yahweh. He begins to worship God. He gives alms to the temple. doesn't seem like he goes the full way to becoming a proselyte. He's not circumcised. He doesn't keep kosher, but he prays to God. He offers money to the temple. He worships God. And as he is praying, an angel appears to him and says, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer. God sees your heart. So here's what you're going to do. Send for this man, Peter. And Peter's going to tell you what you need to do in order to know me. So Cornelius sends some guys, no question. Sends some guys, and the very next day, while they are on the way, God begins to soften Peter's heart as well. It's interesting, Peter is staying with a man named Simon the Tanner. Uh, If you know what a Tanner is, a Tanner is actually somebody who makes a living by skinning animals and using their skins to make clothing. Uh, That type of person would have made a Jewish man unclean already. It's interesting, Peter is already in this state of mind where perhaps he's beginning to think, you know, maybe there are not clean and unclean people. Maybe I can be around somebody who is not considered ceremonially unclean. And right as he's in that state of mind, he's staying with Simon the Tanner. He goes up on the roof to pray, and it's right around noon. It's right at lunchtime. So as he gets up there, he begins to get hungry. He calls down to someone in the house, says, can you please make me a sandwich or whatever it is that he wants? And he continues to pray. And right as he is at his hungriest, he falls into a trance, and he has this vision about food. And coming from the sky are all of these animals in a sheet. Now, all of these animals, four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds, uh, it's very clear that some of these were unclean animals and some of them were clean animals. Uh, the Jews were not allowed to eat most reptiles and lizards. They were not allowed to eat a large number of birds of prey and fowl. There were certain birds they could eat, certain ones they could not. And then an animal, if it was four-footed, it had to chew its cud and have a divided hoof. There were very strict restrictions from Leviticus on what they could eat and what they could not. Well, coming down from the sky is this sort of menagerie of all these different animals. And uh, Peter hears a voice that says, Peter, get up kill these animals and eat them. And Peter looks, and you can imagine his gag reflex kicks in. He goes, no way. I'm not touching that stuff. I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. I was thinking this week, what would be an equivalent, I mean, a food that you and I might consider unclean or unholy or one that we would not eat. So I was imagining, imagine that after church, I said, hey, the, the sun is out, the rain is gonna go away, y'all come over for a barbecue at my house this afternoon, I'm gonna cook out. And you go, great, what are we gonna have? And I say, chihuahua, right? <laughs> I found a stray on my street, we're gonna slice him up and I'm gonna put in, I'm gonna garnish it with geckos I found in my mailbox, right? <laughs> Now what happens to you right now? You go, no thank you, right? We're going to Denny's, okay? <laughs> I'm not coming over for that food, right? But there are certain cultures actually in which that food would not be taboo. We have a strong cultural taboo against certain foods just as the Jews did, but their taboo was not merely cultural. It was also religious. It was based on the law. And so Peter sees this and not only does he kind of gag, but he also goes, I can't do that. That's against the law. And the response that he gets from the spirit of God is I don't want you to call anything God has cleansed unholy anymore. And the reason is because in Jesus Christ, there is nothing and nobody that cannot be cleansed. And Peter, in fact, comes to understand that while the vision technically involves food, it's actually about people. So that by the time he gets to Cornelius' house, after these men arrive and he follows them to Cornelius' house, he says, you know, it's actually taboo. It is forbidden for me to associate with a Gentile but God has shown me I'm not supposed to call anybody unclean, right? He makes this transition, and here's why. Uh, There was a specific reason that Jews didn't hang out with Gentiles. It's not actually in the law that they could not eat with or go into the home of a Gentile. The problem was if you go into the home of a Gentile, you are going to come into contact with multiple unclean foods and surfaces. Anything that they cooked with, would be unclean because they would have cooked with unclean oils and foods. Anything they touched, the walls, the floor, would have rendered you ceremonially unclean so that you would then have to go wash up, offer a sacrifice in the temple before you could worship God again. And so over the thousands of years that the law has been operative, Jews have said, you know what, it's just easier not to go in their homes at all, not to eat at their tables, not to interact with them, touch them, be around them. And so they kept to themselves and the Jews kept to themselves. Some of you have perhaps seen the old movie from the 60s, Fiddler on the Roof where it's about a family of Russian Jews, and you remember the patriarch of this family talks about the Gentiles at a couple of different points, and he says, they keep to themselves, we keep to ourselves, and there's no trouble, at least not yet. That's the way Jews and Gentiles saw each other. And God begins to chip away at this, to say, actually, Peter, those divisions were not ones I intended to last forever. In fact, as you read the Old Testament, what you see is that it was always God's intention to draw people together under one banner. Look at Genesis chapter 12. This is the covenant God made To Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is remarkable. Abraham is really the first Israelite. He's the one that God gives the promise to that you will have this land. And ultimately, it is Abraham's descendants who receive the law. Abraham is the first Israelite, but even in this covenant that God gives to Abraham where he says, I'm going to call your people out as a special people. Right at the end, he says, the reason I'm doing it, by the way, is so that in you, all the nations can be blessed. And the New Testament writers will pick this up and say it was always God's plan, particularly in Galatians, Paul will say this, that the blessing to the nations always involved the Messiah who would come and make things right so that every nation could stream to the light of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. This is the Messiah talking in Isaiah 49. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, God says to his chosen Messiah, this is what you're gonna do. Raise up a light so that all the nations can see my salvation and stream to me. So that by the time you get to Revelation, as we see, as John sees God's vision for how God's going to wrap everything up in Jesus Christ and make the universe right again, look what you see. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. You hear those echoes of Isaiah 49, that God says, I'm going to bring every tribe, every tongue, every people and nation together. Male and female, black and white, rich and poor, all people groups. Quite often, we divide ourselves up, I think, along three Primary lines. One is racial. We think of ourselves in terms of race or ethnicity. Another is economic. I think of myself in terms of a particular economic class. And those first two, in fact, often intertwine so that uh, my racial identity may intertwine with my economic identity. So we tend to classify ourselves by both of those things. And then the third, of course, is gender. I'm a man or a woman. And between those two groups, we often uh, have all of this suspicion and all of this infighting and all of this assumption that those of the other group do not belong or are inferior or are less in the eyes of God. And so we push them away. But watch What the gospel does is you look at Galatians chapter 3. Look what Paul says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's a racial boundary. There is neither slave nor free man. That's an economic boundary. There is neither male nor female. That is a gender boundary. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, notice he is not literally saying there's no such thing as men or women or anything along those lines. Instead, what he's getting at is this. That before God, all of us stand equal in need of forgiveness, in need of the gospel, and able through the power of the Spirit to approach God. So that as a believer in Jesus Christ, what I'm called to do actually is reflect the gathering heart of God. To recognize that God wants to draw people from every tribe, every tongue, every people and nation together. So there's no more them. There's us in Jesus Christ. When you and I see people, do we first think, in terms of some earthly division, category, or class, that our first instinct, or do we first see individuals and say, they're made in the image of God and need to know him through Jesus Christ? Several months ago, we had the opportunity um, at our other two campuses, to hear from a friend of mine from seminary who also uh, leads an organization called the African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministry. His name is Celestin. Musakura, and he came and he shared with us his testimony of trusting Christ, but also he talked about the ministry that he's engaged in in Africa that he began after the Rwandan genocide in 1994, and one of the points that he made, he said one of the things that led to men and women literally killing one another, even Christians killing other Christians, is this, he said, first they thought of themselves as Hutu or Tutsi, and only secondarily as followers of Jesus Christ. And I think you could add really any classification you view yourself as. I first think of myself as black, white, Hispanic. I first think of myself as Republican or Democrat. I first think of myself as American or some other ethnicity. I first think of myself as male or female. I first think of myself in this category. And only secondarily do I say I'm a Christian. What the gospel then calls us to do is say, no, under Jesus Christ, there really are two groups. There is one the group that already knows Jesus Christ because he's been gracious and those who need to know him. And so there's no more them. And what Peter and the early church are challenged to do is recognize not only is there no more them out there, but there's a brand new us. Look at chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking those words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So Peter presents the gospel to Cornelius and his family. I love the scene when Peter first walks into Cornelius's house. uh, Cornelius has gathered his whole family and all his friends together because, you know, you get a vision from an angel to ask for a guy. You can invite some friends, right? So he invites all these people. Peter walks in and he hits the deck, right? And he bows down and Peter says, get up, get up. I'm just a guy. I'm just a man. And Peter proceeds to preach the gospel, and he says, you have probably heard about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for sins. He rose again. And he says, anybody from any nation who believes in him can now join his people. And as Peter is talking, he's still giving this message. All of a sudden, the Spirit comes, and they begin to worship God, and they begin to speak in tongues. They begin to experience exactly what the Jewish believers experienced in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And all of a sudden, you have this indication that now the Spirit of God is moving in such a way that in order to know God, you don't have to go to the temple anymore. Instead, you can be the temple of God through the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, recognizing the work of God, says, who can refuse them being baptized? Baptism is the identification marker, the visible identification that they say, I believe in Jesus and now I'm part of the church. Peter includes them in the people of God, even though for his entire life, he's been taught to stay away from these people. And I think it's only at this critical juncture that the church begins to understand that Jesus really meant it when he said, make disciples of all nations. Not just Jews from all nations, but Gentiles as well. And so now the mark of those who are the brand new us in Jesus Christ is not some sort of racial or ethnic or uh, gender boundary or class boundary, but instead is the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul will say in Romans chapter eight, verse nine. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. What divides those who know Christ now from those who don't is simply the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is the marker for everybody in every age who has trusted Jesus. So these old identity markers, when we stand before God, are no longer of primary importance. They don't identify us before God. Like many of you probably do, I have an old jacket. It's in the garage. It's one that I got in high school, and it's kind of a leather jacket. It has the sort of fake leather sleeves and sort of the fuzzy front, and on it are patches, right? My patches on mine are not athletic patches, but there are things like marching band and student government and stuff like that, right? And so uh, I used to wear that in high school and and it would identify the groups that I was in, right? And I, I even wore it the summer after I graduated from high school a little bit, right? Because I was still with my high school friends. I might have worn it once or twice as a freshman in college and then realized that I probably shouldn't wear that anymore. Because what identified me in high school no longer identified me. And so we grow up and we develop new identity markers, right? Maybe it's a wedding ring, maybe it's an Aggie ring, maybe it is some other marker and we use those markers to divide ourselves from other people. And what God is saying to the church of the first century and what God is saying to the church of the 21st century is that the only marker that matters for the people of God is the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God comes on these people and that becomes the identifying marker. And so there's a brand new us. And so again, we we ask that question when I see people, do I think of them first and foremost in terms of these external categories or do I think of them first and foremost in terms of their status and relationship before God? The idea is that before God, Nobody has a leg up because of the family they were born into, because of the job they have, because of the color of their skin, because of any of these other markers. Now, here's where the early church then is going to begin to really grapple with what this means. What it means is this, that now you cannot create barriers to keep other people out. Instead, you have to create opportunities at every turn to bring people in. Because God is a gathering God. And so what they're going to have to come to terms with, and what I think we often have to come to terms with as well, is that their mission now is to go out and call them To join us, to call them to join us, to go out and look at those who are different, look at those who are uh, challenging, those who don't look like us and say, we're going to call them now to join us. Chapter 11, here's what happens. Uh, Some Jewish believers heard about what Peter did, that he went into the home of a Gentile and they call him in and they rebuke him. You ate at the house of a Gentile. What kind of an example is that? And so Peter shares his story. And he says, look, here's what happened. I'm praying, I'm hungry, I have this vision of food and God tells me that nobody is unclean. So I go to Cornelius' house right after this vision because they showed up and asked me to go and I share the gospel and the spirit comes upon them as I'm sharing the gospel. And I love what Peter says. He goes, who was I to stand in the way of God? In other words, guys, what was I supposed to do? Because God was there. And in chapter 11 Verses 17 and 18, I love it. He says that and it says they got real quiet. Everybody just stops talking. And then somebody goes, well, in fact, I was looking at this in the original Greek and it's, it's one of those, it's like somebody goes almost like, huh, so God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Yeah, what, what, what could you do? God's Spirit is at work, and the message is this, that you now are to go out and call them to join God's people. And actually, from here on out in the book of Acts, the focus shifts, and no longer are they primarily and only preaching to the Jewish people, but the focus of the book of Acts becomes going out to the nations, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, to the Gentiles. And that's where the mission of Paul becomes prominent, in the book of Acts as they wrestle with this. Every other club in the world has some exclusivity to it. Right? We, we create clubs based on affinity. We create clubs maybe even based on race. We create clubs based on gender. We create clubs based on skill set. If you Form a club. There is some exclusivity. You draw a circle somewhere and you say, these people can come in and these people have to stand out here. When I was about six years old, my older brother formed a club and he made me go through uh, an initiation to get into his club, right? I had to eat like mud and I had to walk on these rocks and balance things and and do all these things. And the reality is there were only two of us in his dumb club, right? (laughs) but I had to do all of that just so we could say we've earned the right to stand in this tiny little circle right here that constitutes us, right? The church of Jesus Christ is the one group that's supposed to say the doors are wide open. And the only requirement to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ is that you know Jesus through the power of the spirit, that you have trusted in him and his death and resurrection. In fact, it's not only that we throw the doors wide open, but we actually are called to walk out the doors and grab people and bring them in from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Uh, About two or three years ago, when our middle daughter was five-ish, I was preaching at our Anderson campus, and when I finished my sermon, Uh, I started talking to some people that were up at the front of the room. And as I was talking, I noticed kind of out of the corner of my eye that there was a line of college students uh, growing behind the people I was talking to. And I thought, that's interesting because I'm not normally quite this popular, you know. And so they're all lining up. And I noticed then after that, I saw my five-year-old daughter uh, grabbing people by the hand and bringing them up To the line. And so when I finally got to these people and started talking to them, they said, Abigail told me, and these were her words, you have to come talk to daddy today. And so she just went all over the auditorium (laughs) and gathered, I don't know, 15 students that were in this big group. And so I did. I stood and I talked to them and I got to know some people I hadn't known. And every time I think about that story, I think, what a great illustration of the gathering heart of God who goes out into the world and says, you don't know me, but you need to know me. And you don't know me, but you need to know me. And he sends his people, his children out and says, go gather those people who are different, who are, who are other than you, that you see as them and draw them so they know me. So they're a part of us. That is the missionary heart of God. But as you look at Acts 10 and 11, it requires us at times to challenge some of our deeply held presuppositions and beliefs about the relative value of other people, things that may have been ingrained in us since we were children, so that we have often even involuntary subtle reactions when we see other people who are different and we go, that's them and this is us. And we want to put distance between ourselves and others when God is calling us to move out into our neighborhoods, our community, and even beyond into the world to draw them to know God through Jesus Christ. That's the message of Acts 10 and 11. So, as we wrap up, then, what are some real practical ways we can kind of sink our teeth into this principle that God is wanting us to call men and women from every group to know Him? I asked our Uh, community outreach pastor actually this week. What are some real practical ways that we can engage with thinking about other people as God sees them? He gave me a few uh, thoughts that I wanna pass along to you. One is this, pray that we'll see people as God does. Pray that those uh, deeply rooted prejudices, those deeply rooted tendencies that we often have, that I think all of us, if we're honest, have, pray that God will transform those so that when I see another person, whether they are of a different race economic status, or gender, when I see another person, I first and foremost think, how is that person connected to God? And how do they need to be connected to God? And I see someone made in God's image rather than someone simply of a different group. That is a supernatural transformation. It was a supernatural transformation for the apostle Peter, so I'm guessing it will be for us too. The church has always wrestled with this. It's not a new issue. And so we pray we'll see people as God does. And then secondly, engage with those who are different. Engage with those who are different. Some very practical ways that we can do that. First of all, get involved in conversations. Ryan, our outreach pastor, mentioned to me there's a a great organization. It's a national organization that actually has an arm here in College Station. It's not a Grace Bible Church deal, but this is an organization called Be the Bridge. And you can find actually on Facebook, Be the Bridge, Bryan College Station, or BCS. And what they do is they host conversations with men and women who know Jesus, who are different from different races, different economic spheres, different gender, male and female, right? And they basically put together these events about once a month where we all go, to a home and you sit down and you simply talk to people who don't look like you, think like you, dress like you. And the point is not to solve the problems of the whole world. The point is to think, how can I serve you as a fellow member of the body of Christ? How can I understand who you are? And maybe what God is calling us to do as people who don't live in the same area of town, as people who don't look the same, as people who often think differently, can we find a way to rejoice and unite together under, under the banner of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. And so you engage in these conversations. It also has the effect of humanizing those from groups that we tend to dehumanize. In other words, people that we tend to look at and say, uh, they, are, they are so other that I can't imagine what those people are like, think, and so I just see them as their group. It's a lot harder to do when I sit down and I look a person in the eye and ask about their relationship with Jesus Christ. So engage in those conversations. Secondly, uh, we still have about 20 international students who signed up at the furniture giveaway back in August saying, I want to have a meal in the home of an American, Uh, lunch or dinner or something along those lines. And they're just waiting. They want to go to your house or apartment and have a meal with you. I can't think of an easier way to invite someone into your home from another culture who looks different, who thinks different, who has different presuppositions than you, and engage them simply in conversation and a relationship. If you're interested in that, you can find information about that on our website, on our community outreach page, or email our community outreach assistant, Adriana. They can give you more information and connect you with somebody there. And then lastly, missions. Go as we Uh, begin to talk about in the next couple of months our short-term missions opportunities. Some of those will even be in this country with other cultural groups. Others will be in other countries. But it helps to go for a short period of time somewhere where I find that I am now the them rather than the us. And to ask the question, what is God doing not only in my group but around the world with people from all tribes, tongues, people, and nations? So you go on a short trip like that, and often the deepest impact is what it does in our own hearts and minds as we think about God's purpose and plan for the world. Because again, our, our our understanding of the gospel, there's no more that group and my group in Jesus Christ. But instead we have a commission to say, How can I participate in God's work of building one new people under the banner of the gospel? By the power of his spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your word in this time together. I pray that you would convict us of our sinful tendency to divide up, a tendency that does, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, but that hatred and suspicion and separation from others is never your plan. And what you accomplished in Jesus Christ is a way for everybody to approach you on equal terms. So I pray that we would take the hands of others and draw them closer to ourselves and closer to you in the spirit of the gospel. I pray empower us to do that and change the way we think about others and ourselves. We're grateful for this time and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.